Well, please join me as we stand together and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. And we continue this morning our series of studies through the Bible's first book. It is a book I'm sure many of you have noticed. has a few tales and stories that are rather sorry and sordid. And we come to perhaps the seediest one of them all this morning in chapter 38. It's a chapter that one commentator says is not fit to be read in open public. It's a chapter that's so brusque in its offensiveness, so full of sin that it's not even fit for open discourse, another said. But we do believe, don't we, that all God's word is fit to be read in public, that's fit to be discussed and studied in public. And so while this is a rather infamous story in Genesis, what we're going to see this morning is that the shocking sinfulness contained within the covenant family of Israel, it functions as something like a black backdrop on which we can see the diamond-like beauty and brilliance of God's sovereign grace shining ever through. And so we're going to look at all 30 verses, but to get us going, let me just read verses 12 through 19, a central action in the text, and then pray briefly for God to bless our study, and then we'll begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. When the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died... And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, He thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for your mercy, for your help, that you would send the Spirit among us, that we might see once again the joy the comfort and the rest that's found in knowing your sovereign grace. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this work. Open our ears to hear marvelous things from your word, that we might be fashioned into the likeness of Christ. Help me preach as you say I must, with boldness and with clarity, that we might see Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. I do remember a number of years ago back when you know, people still went to the movie theater and Emily and I were watching this movie about a land full of Legos where everything is awesome. And somewhere near the end of the movie, there's this real abrupt interruption and shift in scene in the cinematography and the photography. And I kind of I looked over at Emily and, and probably said something out loud to the point of what just happened to the movie? 
because I thought, you know, someone had cut in a new movie on the movie reel. And it became quite apparent within a few minutes that this rather abrupt interruption was actually quite pivotal to the ongoing story to make sense of what was actually happening. And you could be forgiven for thinking something happens in Genesis 38 that's quite similar. Uh, this is rather abrupt interruption in the story, in the narrative of Joseph. And you wonder, what's going on here? Because we saw last week in chapter 37, the story of Genesis shifts in its focus from Jacob to his favorite son, his chosen son, Joseph. And by the end of chapter 37, Joseph is being carted off into slavery in Egypt, sold at the hands of his brothers who proved to be no more than bullies to young Joseph. But then immediately after he goes off into Egypt, suddenly the scene shifts. The narrative somewhat shockingly shifts to focus on Judah and Tamar in one of the lowest, darkest parts of Genesis. And you wonder, what's the abrupt interruption doing here? What's the point of it here? A passage that certainly encompasses at least 20 years worth of time, potentially even as much as 30 years worth of time. What's the interruption here for? Well, just like I saw with that movie, Kids, we're going to realize today that this story is pivotal not only to the ongoing narrative in Genesis. It is pivotal to getting us even to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the simple theme that you want to see from Genesis 38 is God's sovereign grace in his choice of Judah. God's sovereign grace in his choice of Judah. It's it's a passage that has two main parts Main parts that are distinguished by these relatively vague references to time. Look at verse 1. We're told at the beginning it happened at that time. And then the next 11 verses, verses 1 through 11, deal with Judah's descent. Then verse 12, look at verse 12. It says, in the course of time. And verses 12 through 30 deal with Tamar's deceit. And what's unifying those two different parts to this one chapter is what's unified the story of Genesis from the very beginning which is God's covenant promise to his people. Because students, if you've been with us for a number of weeks, potentially even a number of months, I hope you've seen, and it's very much written on your heart, God's covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob was a covenant promise that involved the promise of offspring that would be so numerous that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family would be as numerous as the dust of the earth and that they would be a blessing to all nations and all peoples. And as has already happened a number of times in Genesis, that promise of offspring is put in peril here in Genesis 38. And the perilous position of the promise is once again due to sin within the covenant family. So we'll see first of all in verses 1 through 11, the promise rejected. In verses 12 through 30, the promise received. The promise rejected, then the promise received. And maybe you're in here this morning and you wouldn't say that you're following Jesus. You would call yourself a a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, you've come on a fantastic day to see what the grace of God looks like. Because this is a chapter that shows us if God can choose, call, and convert even Judah, surely he can choose, call, and convert any sinner unto his glorious name by his own sovereign grace. That's what we're going to see by the end, our Lord willing. So first of all, then the promise rejected. Look at verse 1. 
It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now kids, what's that time that verse 1 references? You just glance back up what happened at the end of chapter 37. Once again, Joseph is sold off into slavery. If you know your geography well of the ancient Near East, as Joseph is going down to Egypt, uh, we're told here in verse 1 that Judah is going down in the promised land. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, when someone is said to be going down, it's not simply just a geographical reality. It's a spiritual reality. Because what we're going to see in this passage is that Judah's going down in the land signals a going down in his life, spiritually speaking. He's left the covenant family. He's left the chosen tribes of Jacob's family. He has a best friend whose name is Hiram, who's an Adulamite, who's a, who's a Canaanite. He's making friends with the world. And not just that, if you glance through the next few verses, he takes a wife from among the Canaanites. This daughter of Shua. And so what is coming about is the greatest fear of his great-grandfather Abraham and his grandfather Isaac. That the chosen family of Yahweh would intermarry with the Canaanites, the pagan peoples of the land. And, And Judah is clearly, he's utterly careless about these godly desires from leaders in his home. And kids, I wonder if maybe you find yourself this morning, children, if you are careless about godly desires your parents have for you. Or maybe you're paying attention to them. Or maybe more like Judah, you're going away from them, turning aside from them to do whatever you want to do. So we find out he marries this daughter of Shua. And in the course of time, she provides Judah with three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, which are all significant to the storyline. But underscoring this kind of dark, sinful, frankly, ominous background to Genesis 38 is these essential words that show up in the locations. Look at verse 5. When Shelah was born, Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. Now, the name of that town simply means town of lies. And lies are getting ready to define Judah's life. Particularly lies he's going to give to his daughter-in-law. A daughter-in-law that he handpicked. Notice verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So her name, it means something like palm tree. That's used, for example, in the Song of Songs to reference a woman who's unusually pleasant and beautiful in appearance. And Judah selects this beautiful Tamar to be the wife to his firstborn son, Ur. But for reasons we don't know, just that Ur was sinful enough that God puts him to death in verse 7. So the essential problem in the passage presents itself for the first time. What's going to happen to Judah's line? How, How is he going to get more offspring? His firstborn has died childless. Well, the scheme to remedy this problem now comes in verse 8. Look at what he decides to do. He says to Onan, his secondborn, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, to our modern sensibilities and cultured instincts, that sounds altogether strange, doesn't it? This idea that the younger brother would just take the older brother's wife to be his own, that the older brother might get children by the younger brother, if you follow all that. It was a common enough custom in the ancient world. And it actually becomes inscripturated law later on in the Old Testament. So if you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 25, it's 
what's commonly called in biblical studies this Leverite law. And verse 5 and 6 simply says this, and it applies directly to this situation. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. So this is something that is good in God's plan, in his law, what Judah has just required of Onan. But if you just glance through the next verse or so, you'll see that Onan doesn't want any part of it. He wants to gratify his sensual desires, but he has no loyalty to the family because he pulls out of ever giving children to Tamar in order that his older brother's name might be extended. And what you need to see, uh, underscoring his sin is the reality of he is really greedy for the inheritance. Because the firstborn son, Ur, has died. So who gets the inheritance next? Onan. But if Onan has a child by Tamar, that child takes the name of the firstborn son, Ur, so who really gets the double portion of the firstborn inheritance? That new son, not Onan. And it seems as though he wants to keep all of that money, all of that inheritance to himself. And so he doesn't do anything to actually bring about children. And likewise, you'll notice in verse 10, he dies because of it. One son has died childless. The second son has died childless. How is Judah going to get offspring? Do you see the problem? So there's only one son left. The youngest, Shelah. And here's what Judah decides to do with him. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. There's an immense amount of stuff going on in that one verse in kind of the ancient context of Genesis. The first of which is by essentially saying to Tamar, just wait a bit until Shelah grows up. They have just now been formally betrothed to one another. Shelah and Tamar. We don't know how much age difference there was between the two of them, but clearly there's enough age where Judah says, you need to wait a little bit for Shelah to grow up to a marriageable age, and then you guys can get married. But because they were betrothed, what normally should happen is that Tamar would stay in Judah's household, and Judah would provide for her, and she would receive the well-being and the status that belonged to her in the community. But where does he send her? Back home to her father's house. Not to live as a betrothed woman, but as what? A widow. There's no actual generosity. There's no goodness that Judas should have shown to Tamar that he's actually showing to her. And it's all because of superstition. Do you see that at the end of verse 11? It's almost as though he thinks Tamar is some sort of bad omen in the household. You know, it's like superstitiously, you know, she was married to Ur while Ur died, and then she was married to Onan, and Onan died, and there's one common denominator in this scenario, and it's Tamar, and so she'd better not marry Shelah, because then Shelah's going to die, I'm going to get no children by Shelah, so just go stay with your father, and then eventually you can marry Shelah. That's what he says. But she clearly recognizes in the rest of the text that he's not going to fulfill that promise. He's not going to fulfill that vow and pledge. So it's a promise rejected. Judas' scheme has resulted in the promise rejected. Now, Tamar turns to her own scheme, results in the promise received. Look at verse 12 through 13, a scheme that begins with a report. 
In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. I knew a man several years ago who was engaged to be married. It was only about six weeks out from his wedding. And he was living with some extended family to kind of finalize the wedding preparations that were out of state. And he and his fiance were having no small amount of tension and trouble. The family was wondering if the wedding was even going to come to fruition or if it was going to have to get called off. And one night he left the house where he was staying to go have this conversation with his bride-to-be. And, you know, everyone in the house knew that this is going to be kind of the make-or-break-it conversation. So when he came home hours later with shopping bags full of groceries for a, a playoff baseball watching party and a smile on his face, the family had assumed that everything went just fine and were shocked to discover that he had actually returned from calling off and canceling the wedding. And they were having this disconnect with the response doesn't seem to, to match the event that had just happened. And in Judah's life, it seems the same way. His response of going to a sheep-shearing celebration doesn't seem to match the event of his wife having just died. Because it seems like his momentary mourning is now giving way to this festive merriment. This festivity now follows the funeral. Because someone, someone joked that I heard this week, you know, sheep-shearing season in the ancient Near East was very much like this. What happened at the sheep-shearing celebration stayed at the sheep-shearing celebration. Because there was a time, frankly, of riotous partying of great debauchery and much sensuality. So it's no surprise then, knowing that, what Tamar decides to do. He glances through the next few verses. She takes off her widow's garment. She puts on a veil. She goes to this place in Aim on the way to Timnah because she knows Judah's going to be passing by. She knows the kind of desires that such men have on the way to and from these sheep-shearing seasons. And look what Judah does in verse 16. He turned to her at the roadside, this veiled woman, and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? So what's your payment? Well, he says, I'll give you a young goat. Well, he obviously doesn't have the young goat, which shows that Judah is kind of ruled by his momentary impulses. Hormones more than holiness controls his life in this moment. So he said, well, I'll give you a pledge for it, right? You need a pledge that I'm good for the goat. What do you want? It's essentially anything you want. Just name your pledge. And look what she requires in verse 18. In the middle part, she says, your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hands. Now, these three items weren't just tokens of Judah's office, symbols of his authority. They were clear identifying markers of who he was. It would be something akin today if someone came to you and said, all right, I need a pledge for some sort of payment. And then the person said, well, what do you want? And then they said, well, give me your passport. Give me your driver's license and give me your credit cards. All of those are what I require. This is essentially what she is requiring of Judah. And again, ruled by his passions, he hands them over. Look at verse 18 at the end. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. She's deceived the deceiver. 
As Judah was the deceiver of Jacob when Joseph was sold into slavery. Yet again, deception is rearing its head in the story of Genesis. Well, some time goes by. We don't know exactly how long. Judah decides, hey, it's time to make good on the payment, and I need to get my stuff back. So he sends his close friend, this Canaanite man, Hiram the Adulamite, with the young goat. Go find the veiled woman. Go find the cult prostitute on the way to Timnah. Well, he goes and tries to find this woman. He can't find her anywhere Seems like he asks around. No one's seen her. No one's heard of her. He comes back to Judah and reports his failed attempt to provide payment. And Judah says, well, just let it be. I don't want to be a laughing stock in the community. Which, in its own way, we as kind of more of an omniscient narrator would know what's going on here. It's rather striking that Judah is more eager to perpetuate his hypocritical reputation than to live with righteousness and keeping his vows before the Lord. And I wonder how many of you might be in a similar situation. So much of your energy and efforts throughout the week is actually promoting some sort of hypocritical reputation. Someone who you really aren't. He doesn't want to be a laughingstock when we know everything that he has done causes him to be a spiritual laughingstock. But he's not done yet, is he? Three months go by. We know that by verse 24. Three months go by. She's pregnant. She's showing. She can't hide it anymore. And look at what Judah decides to do when he hears that report. We're told in verse 24 that Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And it's a verse that's full of irony for a couple of reasons. First of all, is Judah himself had been immoral according to the standards of the time. Not simply by his actions on that road to Timnah. Immoral, in fact, he did not provide Tamar with a husband who he was legally bound to provide. Not just that, he of course has participated in this harlotry for which he now condemns Tamar to capital punishment. Not just capital punishment, capital punishment execution by burning. It was a form of capital punishment in that ancient culture that was only reserved for the most heinous of sins. Such as Judas' fury. At what he's discovered. At what he's heard. And so we come then to verse 25. Many of these moments that you get in the Old Testament. Or certainly if you're anything like me. You just want some sort of divine movie screen. To play out before your eyes. To see what this scene looked like. Because they're bringing Tamar out. Bringing her out to her presumed execution. But she seems to be nonplussed. For look at what she says in verse 25. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And you know, don't you, that there are times when God will just spiritually shock his people from their slumber. Sometimes it's a picture, sometimes it's an item, maybe it's even a song, perhaps it's even a word. It seems as though in the course of this narrative that God has just suddenly shocked Judah awake as Tamar has said, please identify these things. Because you know, last time we've heard that language in Genesis, some 20 years or so before, if you skip up to Genesis 37 verse 32, Judah and his brothers come to their father Jacob, whom they're deceitfully saying, Joseph, the chosen son, has died. And what do they say to him? Please identify these this is almost as though two, maybe three decades later, perhaps for the first time since, 
he hears the exact same phrase, please identify these. And realizes his shortcomings and his sin. For look at what Judah declares in verse 26. He identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Uh, Literally, it's she is righteous, not I. Which is the Bible's only commentary on Tamar's actions in this text. And you want to take them as such. He continues on, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. And so it's here that you begin to see what's going on in God's work. He's providing children for the chosen tribe of, of Judah. Tamar thinks, of course, it's just a child. Judah thinks it's just a child, but twins show up. If you glance through the next few verses, labor comes along the way some six months later. She realizes, because she didn't have the divine revelation that Rebecca got, that twins are in your room, that twins are in the room. But just like Rebecca, she's got these twins warring inside her. Just as Jacob and Esau were warring in Rebecca's womb. You see, as the text continues, that the firstborn son whom Tamar names Zerah. He kind of bursts out first with his hand. It's like midwife ties a red string around it just so they would know who the firstborn was. But in the course of of this wrestling in the womb, it's like the secondborn yanks the firstborn back in. And then he comes out. And Tamar subsequently names him Breach. Because he made a breach and made his way out. Or his name was Perez. A name that shows up, if you want to read this later on today in Ruth chapter 4. Perez, born of Tamar, ten generations before the king after God's own heart, David. Tamar herself shows up in a genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 3. Many generations afterward, the mother of the king of God's own heart, Jesus Christ. Such is the sovereign grace of God in choosing Judah. That the lion of Judah would indeed come from this union. My kids, I hope that you are growing up in homes where imagination is prized and you know, parents are providing you with no small number of opportunities to exercise imagination that you might find your affections and your attention stirred, even in Godward directions. You know how these things can often happen in imaginary lands and worlds with all these characters and scenes. And I grew up in one such home and and undoubtedly the most influential imaginary world of, of my youth was the land of Narnia that belonged to C.S. Lewis's Chronicles and of all the characters and, and scenes and, and stories that stabbed deepest into my psyche was in the first book, Susan Pevensey asked a question of the great Lion King Aslan, is he safe? And in the course of that discussion, she's trying to figure out if this great king whom she's never met is like what she would expect him to be. If this king fits her inclinations and expectations of what a king should be. She of course soon finds out, if you know the story, that he's nothing like she expected he would be. And as Genesis continues, we continue to find out truth of what God is like. What Yahweh the covenant making and covenant keeping Lord is like. And I hope you're consistently seeing how he is nothing like what an ordinary human being would think he would be. He doesn't match ordinary human inclinations and expectations of what a God would be. And perhaps few stories even in Genesis show that as beautifully as Genesis chapter 38. I read a commentator this week that says this story is secular through and through. God doesn't act. He doesn't do anything in the passage worth paying attention to. 
When you read statements like that, you wonder, did we just read the same chapter? Do we have the same Bible that the chapter is in? Because God is in this text, isn't he? But what you need to see is he is unlike a God that most people in the world would think he would be. He's the sovereign God of grace. And I want to underscore his sovereignty in three different ways as we begin to close. First, he's the God of sovereign majesty. The God of sovereign majesty. I'll look back to verse 7 of our text. We mentioned it, but just notice the exact language. But Ur, Judas' firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Perhaps it's not surprising that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. His name is just Hebrew for evil spelled backwards. And whatever his sin was, you see it here that Yahweh struck him dead. And to underscore this blinding majesty, this terrifying justice of God, it gets doubled, doesn't it, in verse 10. Onan did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and Yahweh put him to death also. Onan, of course, thought his sin was secret. None of the neighbors knew about this. None of the extended family knew about this. But the majestic sovereign God named Yahweh knew about this. And killed him. And you haven't rightly reckoned with the true God of the true scriptures. Unless you realize that you likewise are wicked in God's sight. And you likewise deserve to die. Born into sin. And left to your own devices. And of course if Genesis 38 left us there. It would be wise to leave the room this morning. Totally dejected. What hope is there for such wicked people like you and me? Well, the text goes on to say he's not just the God of sovereign majesty. Secondly, he's the God of sovereign mercy. Consider Tamar. Judah showed no kindness to Tamar. Judah reneged on his promise to Tamar. Judah would not provide Tamar with what belonged to her. But Yahweh did. And who was Tamar? Someone from the pagan Canaanite people that didn't belong in the covenant family. And yet, Tamar, what? Is rightly called one of the mothers of Jesus Christ. Such is God's mercy that knows no limit and knows no bounds. His mercy extends to people even outside of the covenant community. Mercy extends even people who are potentially, seemingly, too far gone for God's covenant mercy. So you might be in here today and find yourself too far gone for God. Too far outside the covenant community. Tamar tells us no one is out of reach of this sovereign mercy. So if Ur and Onan show us his sovereign majesty, if Tamar shows us his sovereign mercy, Judah shows us his sovereign mystery. Because from this point forward, every time you hear the name Judah referenced in Scripture and understand his chosen status as the chosen tribe, you want to think, you ought to think, that Judah This, Judah, is the chosen one? Because I want you to see, he is the chosen one. Flip forward to Genesis chapter 49. Joseph is on his deathbed. I'm sorry, Jacob is on his deathbed. There's these kind of dying predictions, prophecies, benedictions that he's making about each of his sons. And he begins in birth order. Remember this, he starts with Reuben. And what does he say? Reuben, 
my firstborn son, to whom the double portion of the inheritance should go. You disqualified yourself when you slept with my concubine Bilhah in Genesis chapter 35. So he gets then to the next two, Levi and Simeon. You are the ones to whom the double portion of the inheritance should come. But you disqualified yourself in murdering the Shechemites in Genesis chapter 34. Then he comes to the fourth, Judah. And you'd expect him to say, wouldn't you? All expectation at this point, Judah, to you belongs the double portion of the inheritance, but you disqualified yourself with your sinful, sensual actions in Genesis 38. But he doesn't say that, does he? Look at verse 10, Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And you almost want to cry out, to him? The Messiah will come from? From him will be the ruler of the nations? From this one will be the one that all peoples bring their tribute to? Of course, doesn't it underscore for us even this morning? Yes, this one. Because kids, did Judah do anything to deserve that inheritance and promise and blessing? Of course not. Because no one ever does, right? It's only by sovereign grace that anyone receives a blessing and promise from God. It's only of his sovereign mercy and majesty in a mysterious way that he has chosen Judah. That Jesus Christ would come to be the lion of Judah. In his right hand belongs this scepter. As he rules from his father's right hand in heaven. So Tamar comes along the way in Genesis chapter 38. And she gets the scepter with a trick, doesn't she? Do you know that same scepter is available to you today if you would simply trust in this lion of Judah? The son of Tamar, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. God's eternal son who rules from heaven's right hand. God's eternal son who is none other than what? The king of sovereign majesty, sovereign mercy, and sovereign mystery. It's always been and will always be of God's sovereign grace that any are chosen. Let us pray together. Father, we do ask for your help to understand the the true depths of your grace and mercy that we don't deserve. Yet you pour out upon us in eternal measure. May we see our King Jesus Christ seated at your right hand with the eyes of faith and submit to his rule and submit to his reign and find ourselves welcomed into your kingdom. Singing about the story of your glory and singing about the way of your grace. My grace that saves and grace that will welcome us home. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.